Good morning, Christ community. For those of you who haven't met me, my name is John. I'm one of four elders who currently serves this church body. And before we dig into the nitty-gritty of our text here today, and it's a good one, I want to invite us to momentarily climb up onto the balcony, so to speak, of Hebrews and sort of reorient us to the big picture of what's going on here in this book. The author, whose identity is unknown, is writing to some relatively new believers who are struggling in their faith. We don't know all of the particulars of what they're facing, but we do know that they are up against some kind of persecution as a result of their commitment to Christ. And like the Israelites, several thousand years before, uh, in the wilderness, they're wondering, is this worth it? Is this worth it? Or would we not be better off going back to our old way of life? And so the author's message throughout this book is don't give up. Don't give up. Repeatedly, you see this language of hold fast. Hold fast to your confidence. Hold fast to your hope. Hold fast to your confession. Because, and this is our theme for the series, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than whatever you might be tempted to go back to. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better uh, than the Old Covenant. He's better than anyone or anything you might be tempted to worship in place of him. And so that's the author's fundamental purpose throughout this book and all these different texts that we look at. He's encouraging his readers and encouraging us to hold fast to our confession because Jesus truly is better. All right, so that's kind of the big idea here. That's the constant throughout this entire book. What changes along the way is his approach to accomplishing that purpose. At times, those of you who've been here have experienced this, at times in the book, he's quite stern in his approach. He's direct, he's aggressive. Some might even describe him as combative. He charges them to pay attention to the gospel they've heard and received, lest they drift away from it. He conveys, conveys a sense of urgency about hearing God and responding to God today, that repeated refrain, today, today, today. If you hear God's voice today, do not harden your hearts. He reminds them of how the Exodus generation rebelled against God and thus died in the wilderness, never to enter the promised land. And most recently in our text last week, he describes the word of God as a double-edged sword, one that penetrates and exposes our hearts before the one to whom we must all give account. So this is one approach the author takes, this very direct approach, and sometimes, think if we're honest, that's exactly what we need. There are times when we need to be awoken from our spiritual slumber. There are times when we need to be warned about what happens when we neglect our faith. 
There are times that we need to be exposed for who we really are and what's really going on inside of us. So don't hear me apologizing for that approach. There's times that we need it. And I've personally been on both sides of it. I've, I've given this type of exhortation. I've received this types of exhortation. Many of you are probably in the same boat. It's not fun. It's not easy. Uh, but it's good and important and needed at times. However, there are other times when we need a different approach. There are times when what we need is a softer tone, a gentler spirit, a more tender disposition that warmly and patiently and kindly beckons us into fellowship with God. And that, friends, is the kind of text we have before us this morning. Having just been laid bare by God's sharp, penetrating word, we are now invited to come near based on the high priestly ministry of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And that is really the, the theme, uh, the, the construct, the idea that is going to take center stage, not just in our text this morning, but for the next number of weeks, the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. And so today, my goal is to lay a foundation for that journey. So we're going to answer three questions. Number one, what is a high priest? Let's make sure we have a, a proper category to even think about this subject. What is a high priest? What makes Jesus a great high priest, as the author describes him? And then number three, how do our answers to questions one and two beckon us warmly, compassionately, lovingly into more intimate fellowship with our Heavenly Father? So that's where we're headed this morning. What is a high priest? What makes Jesus a great high priest? And what does all of this have to say about our relationship with God today? So let's pray and invite God to lead us down that path. Uh, Father, we're thankful for uh, the entirety of the book of Hebrews. We're thankful uh, for your willingness in this book to tell us the truth, uh, to confront us with that truth, to be very honest, very direct, uh, to sober us on certain points that that's been good. We thank you for that. Uh, but we're also thankful for these portions of, of the book where uh, you take a different tone, a different approach. It feels a bit warmer. It feels a bit gentler. Just reading these verses can almost feel you just wooing us into relationship with you. And so we thank you for the passage before us this morning. I pray that you would work through it and work through this time to compel us to draw near to you in relationship to your son Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, question number one, what is a high priest? Uh, 
this is not a, a construct, a phrase, an idea that uh, we think about or talk about too much in modern day society. So what is it? If we're going to understand what makes Jesus a great one, we need to sort of begin with the garden variety version. So here's you know, just a brief word of context on, on what a high priest is. Obviously, there's a lot more that could be said, but it's simply this. In the Old Covenant, the high priest served as a mediator between God and his people. You have a holy, perfect, blameless God, and you have people who have been, post the fall, tainted by sin. And so if those two entities are going to be in relationship with each other, you've got a problem there. A holy God cannot be in direct contact with sinful people unless you have some type of mediator, some type of go-between, some type of bridge between those two entities. And that is where the high priest came in. He would go into the holy of holies where God's presence dwelt, and he would offer sacrifices. He would offer the blood of animals to at least temporarily atone for the sins of the people. And that is exactly what we see described in chapter 5, verse 1. If you have your Bibles out, you can take a look. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. All right, so that is the essence of, of what it is to, to be a high priest. He's representing God to his people, and he's offering sacrifices so that they can be in some type of relationship. And then if you read on there in chapter 5, he goes on to list two qualifications for a high priest. Uh, the first qualification is that they must be able to sympathize with the people they represent. And this is captured here in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5. He, referring to the high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. All right, and so, again, what the author's highlighting here is that the high priest had to be able to identify with, sympathize with the people that he's representing before God. And in this case, sort of the connecting point is the fact that they're all sinful. The high priest is sinful, the people are sinful, and so when he offers sacrifices before God, he's doing so for, for them and for himself. There's an identification there. He's able to sympathize with those whom he represents. And then verse 4 highlights the second qualification for high priest. It says, No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So the second qualification is that a high priest cannot be self-appointed. You can't just wake up one day and decide that you're going to be the high priest. The high priest was specifically called by God, appointed by God to his office. So if you sort of put this all together and you're looking for one concrete definition, you might say it like this. A high priest is a divinely appointed mediator between God 
and his people who offers sacrifices for sins and identifies with those whom he represents. He's a divinely appointed mediator between God and his people who offers sacrifices for sins and identifies with those whom he represents. That is, in a nutshell, what a high priest is and does. So now we turn to our second question. Having laid a foundation for high priestly work, what is it that makes Jesus a different kind of high priest? A better high priest? A great high priest? As the author describes him here in our passage. Well, the answer to this question is found in verses 5 through 10. And the first thing the author does here in this section is he makes it clear that Jesus meets the minimum requirements for a high priest. Look at verses 5 and 6. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, These are references to Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, and they're there to drive home the point that Jesus was appointed by God to serve as high priest before he ever showed up on earth in human form. Those words in the Psalms were penned before Jesus came to earth, and so it makes very clear that Jesus was appointed by God to serve in this capacity. So in that context, he meets the first requirement. He's appointed by God. Then look at verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In these two verses, the author is stressing Jesus' similarity to and identification with us as human beings. And he does that in several different ways. We're told that Jesus offered up prayers to God, often with loud cries and tears. Probably for many of us, our mind goes to Gethsemane, just before Jesus' death, and he knows what's coming. And he's, he's in anguish. He's distressed. He's troubled. And he, through tears and sweats of blood, asks God if this cup could be taken from him. Jesus offered those kinds of prayers to God, just as we do at times. We're told that Jesus learned obedience from God. Sort of a provocative notion of Jesus throughout his earthly life learning obedience. And we have to be careful in how we understand that. What that isn't saying is that there was a time that Jesus was disobedient and then became obedient. But I like how one of the commentators put it. Throughout his life, Jesus was coming to appreciate fully what conforming to God's will involved. 
So it's different than the way we might learn obedience, but there's a process involved. Jesus is growing. He's learning. In a sense, he's maturing as he walks through his earthly life, just as we do. And one of the things that he learned is that obedience to God often comes through suffering for God. Jesus understands what it is to suffer. He understands what it is to be rejected, to be condemned, ultimately to be crucified on a Roman cross. And so you can kind of see what the author's doing here. He's saying, look, Jesus prayed, Jesus learned, uh, Jesus suffered. This is the real stuff of human beings. He's demonstrating for us that Jesus meets the second qualification of a high priest, an ability to identify with and sympathize with and empathize with those whom he represents. But if you continue to read on in verses 9 and 10, you realize pretty fast that in Jesus, we are not dealing with just some garden variety high priest. In Jesus, we are dealing with a very different kind and type of high priest than any who had come before him. Look at how verse 9 begins, and being made perfect. Being made perfect. We'll stop right there. Because no other high priest had ever been morally perfect. Each high priest who come before Jesus, the text said, had to offer sacrifices both for the people and for themselves. Not so with this high priest. Jesus prayed to God. He learned obedience from God. He suffered for God. But he never rebelled against God. Not once. And as a result, continuing in verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see, when the other high priests offered their sacrifices, the atonement was temporary. Their guilt was temporarily assuaged. God's wrath was temporarily satisfied. Their relationship was temporarily sustained. But it wasn't a permanent fix. That's why the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies and offer that sacrifice year after year after year. But the sacrifice of this high priest. It was a once and for all sacrifice, offering not temporary salvation, but eternal salvation for those whom he represents. Jesus was perfect. Therefore, his sacrifice was perfect. Finally, look at verse 10. 
upon a cursory reading, you may not think too much of this verse. You may be tempted to kind of set it to the side. That was my first impulse, but uh, there's something important to be mined here. And be made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who's Melchizedek? Uh, honestly, when I came across this for the first time, I wasn't sure. This isn't a real prominent character in the biblical narrative. Uh, what little we know about his story can be found in Genesis uh, 14, verses 18 through 20, just a real short excerpt there. Uh, and he shows up onto the scene, seemingly out of nowhere, to bless Abram after a military victory. And what's interesting about that short passage in Genesis is that Melchizedek is described as both a priest and a king. He's described as both a priest and a king, and this is a very unusual combination. In the history of Israel, there were many priests, and there were many kings that you meet along the way, but there were never priest kings. Right? So especially to the original reader, this would have been a, a, an unusual and a provocative idea, this, this mysterious person who's both a priest and a king. So it begs the question, what is our author getting at when he tells us that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, I think what he's communicating to us is that Jesus is the total package. As our perfect high priest, Jesus identifies with our struggles. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He understands what it's like to feel weak, to feel tempted, to suffer. As our great high priest, Jesus cares deeply about our needs. But as our perfect king, he has the strength and the power and the authority to do something about those needs. He had the strength to resist temptation. He had the courage to endure suffering. He had the power from God to rise from the grave, all so that Satan, sin, and death could be conquered once and for all. As a priest, Jesus sympathizes with us. As king, he saves us and sustains us and rules over each and every one of us. Hopefully, all of this context in terms of what is a high priest and what makes Jesus a great high priest, hopefully it helps us to better appreciate and respond to the invitation found at the end of chapter four. So I would invite you to go back there. 
Listen again to verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is where we're going to land this morning. I want us to linger on this verse, this invitation, for a few moments. What I want us to, to see and understand and appreciate is that this invitation, it's what the whole book of Hebrews is driving at. All the imperatives, all the warnings, all the rebukes, the point of it all is to expose our need for Jesus. Not our need for angels, or for Moses, or for the old covenant, or for any other idol that we might be tempted to put in his place, but to expose our need for Jesus our great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, died to pay for them, and now invites us to draw near to him that we might find grace and mercy in our time of need. A few nights ago, Friday evening, I got to witness a beautiful picture of this invitation being lived out. We were invited to attend a one-year celebration over at Mercy's Refuge. Some of you know about this place, some of you don't. It is a residential program in our community designed to help women in crisis experience healing and become the full person that God made them uh, to be. Uh, we have some members of Mercy's Refuge with us this morning, so glad to have you here. Uh, Nate Himes, a member of Christ Community, is the director over there. We have uh, several other members of the church who uh, invest and volunteer over there. Uh, we had uh, one very uh, brave, courageous young woman from our church uh, choose to be a resident over there and, and saw God do incredible things in her life along the way. And so was over there Friday night. They're celebrating their one-year anniversary. And as part of that celebration, uh, some of the women stood up and uh, they shared testimonies uh, of, of what God had done in their lives during their time in the program. And, you know, each, each story, each testimony is different. You know, each of them comes from different backgrounds, different struggles, different ways that God met them um, in terms of what they were facing. But as they got up one after another to share these testimonies, I noticed a common thread throughout the stories. Uh, most all of them, in, in, in one way or another, said that when they first came to Mercy's Refuge, that they were ashamed. They were ashamed. 
They were ashamed of where they've come from. Uh, they were ashamed of some of the things uh, that they had done in their lives. Uh, some of them are ashamed uh, because of some things uh, that were done to them. Uh, they're ashamed. And they came in feeling unworthy to be in relationship with other people, let alone with God. But then they talked about their time in that community. And they talked about what it was like to take a fresh look at Jesus, their great high priest, who knows all that they've been through. Uh, high priest who can sympathize with their pain. One who has experienced all the temptation that they've ever faced, but never gave in, so that he could offer a perfect sacrifice for their sins. And uh, what they have come to realize, as they shared Friday night, is that this great high priest is not only able to bring them before God, but he's able to present them to God as the beautiful, radiant, forgiven daughters that they are in Christ. No more shame, no more guilt, no more fear. They can now look God in the eye and know that he loves them and that he longs for them to draw near. And I think the reason um, those testimonies were so moving for me is because that's not just their story. That's my story. It's your story. That, in a sense, is all of our stories. You know, we clean up pretty well on Sunday mornings. But deep down, if we're honest, I think most of us feel a certain measure of guilt, a certain measure of shame, a certain measure of unworthiness in approaching God's throne. Because we know, right? We know the thoughts that have gone through our head this past week. And we know some of the words that have come out of our mouth this past week. We know some of the temptations that we have indulged this past week, in this past month, in this past year. We know. Going back to last week when God's word comes in and exposes us, ugh, it's ugly. It's ugly, some of the stuff that is inside of us and comes out of us. But what those brave women the other night reminded me is that God knows too. He knows all of that, even better than we do. And yet, because of Jesus, because of our great high priest, he invites us to confidently draw near to him. So that's the word 
I want to leave us with this morning. Wherever you're at, whatever it is you might be going through, however badly you think you might have messed up this relationship or that situation, whatever it might be, remember this. Jesus, your great high priest, he sympathizes with you. He intercedes for you, and he invites you to draw near, that you might find mercy and grace in your time of need. Let's pray. God, we hear this invitation. not just to come near to you, to sort of be in the same room as you, but to boldly and confidently approach you, expecting to find mercy and grace. It's, it's somewhat unbelievable, considering the, the people that we are and the things that we've done and all the different times that we have disobeyed you, rebelled against you, failed you, and yet because of Jesus, our great high priest, we can boldly come near. It's unbelievable, Father, that 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 can be real, that this invitation can be genuine and sincere, but we trust you that it is. We trust that it is, and so help us, Father, as we get to know Jesus better as we become more like him, as the Spirit continues to work on our hearts. I pray that through all of that, you would give us the courage and the freedom that we need to boldly come before your throne, that we might receive from you, that we might receive mercy, that we might receive grace, that we might receive healing, that we might receive all the love you long to give us. Help us to draw near, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.